Well, hello everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 215. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, today's guest, Mary Ann Corbett, is here. She'll be joining us in about five or ten minutes. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do it because you love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button and share, subscribe, tell your friends, which is the nicest part. If you like, say, oh, I had fun on the Rattlecast last night. If you post that on Twitter or Blue Sky or Facebook or Instagram or whatever you want to do, that helps a lot. Just spreading the word about how wonderful these nights are that we get to fill with poetry. Um, now, as we always, we're going to start with uh, the Poet Respond Poet. And Alicia Rebecca Myers is here, too. So uh, let's say hello to uh, Alicia. Hi, Alicia. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yes, thanks so much for being here and writing this really beautiful poem. It was a, it was a difficult um, situation, of course, for, for so many people just to think about, let alone have any kind of connection to. And, you know, it was one of those weeks where there were so many Poetry Spawn poems. It was, it was several hundred, and almost all of them were about this same topic. And, um, and it's one of those times where, where poetry really helps the healing process, to be able to think about things and work through your emotions in that way. And so it's great to come up with so many poems. But can you talk a little bit about how your poem came to be and, and you know, why it's here? Sure. Well, I really felt the poem was insistent because I had a ton of other work I needed to do, but it kept coming back to me. Um, my brother-in-law had just found out an hour before I wrote the poem that, sorry, my child is coming in. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> like It's like the pandemic all over again. Um, had found out that he lost a very close family friend mm -hmm. in the attack. And I had also read Maya Alper's account, the dedication in my poem, uh, or, or her quote rather, uh, and I was moved by it. And so I felt like I wanted to 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 really respond to that. So I sat down and and immediately I thought like, I don't exactly know what to say because I felt like all the voices of, of all of humanity was just on me. But I felt like I always, re I had to return to structure as, as a way to make sense often in poems. So I tend to write villanelles and sonnets when I feel that something almost defies logic. And I think that terror in any form defies logic. And so the villanelle was really the way to respond to that. Yeah. And it's such a beautiful villanelle. And the, um, that, that first line, the extraordinary arms of the bush, um, is, is, was that the one that generated the rest of the sounds of the poem? Is that how it came to be? You heard that phrase and then came through or did that come later? It came first. Yeah. yeah. I, I always, based poems i'm very sound based because i have a music background and i think a lot about that's why i like villanelle so much because they're so sound driven and i was thinking about arms felt important to me because i i'd read a lot of other accounts of of maya alper's experience and from her and i felt like the bush was really holding her and i also liked the word arms because it it also evokes weaponry and so i wanted to do a lot in the poem where I, where I played around with some of the double meaning of words in that way. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And it's just such a, a heartbreaking account. I mean, the thing that did the, about the poem for me, I, I always talk about this, but uh, uh, when I'm reading submissions, it's the poem that sort of gives me an emotional reaction or even like a physical reaction, like the goosebumps kind of feeling of, of being so, you know, connected to a thought, you know, and 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 it, that put yourself in the space where so many news articles are, there's such a distance to them, and this poem actually makes it you know transfers the feeling of actually being there. Um, did you know that that this was going to be the angle you were going to write about? Um, writing about uh, Maya Alper, the, the the quote came from that. Was that the, the start of the poem? 
Yeah, that was the start of the poem because I think that this is this is a very um polarized moment and you know I have I have very close friends who are posting about free Palestine which I understand and then I have a, a lot of Jewish family who are still in mourning sitting shiva and so to me I wanted to approach this from a position of how can we find the strength to keep going. I really wanted to think about Maya's humanity. I think she's incredible. And and I know I wrote you, Tim, and told you that um, I shared the poem with Maya. I found her on mm-hmm. Facebook and I shared it with her because I think after it was published, I felt like more than anything, she was the reader I needed to reach. And she wrote me back and she said, thank you for this poem. And of course, I thanked her. Um, anyone listening should go to her Facebook page and see her videos and account of the experience because it goes into even more detail about just how I don't want to say gracious necessarily, because I think in this moment, we also have to, um, it's complicated. It's not just about grace, but I think that her will to survive and look for love in this moment is so strong. And that's where I wanted to write the poem about her, because I think otherwise it was going to be very issue driven. Um, It was going to be, I don't want to blame any side right now. I think that I'm trying to sit in the moment of people dying and wanting to be with them and encourage them to keep going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's really cool that you found uh, Maya, and um, and that's the heart of what Poetry Respond is all about, too, because poems have to find the space between. They can't be one side or the other, or they don't work as poems. It's those interstices between the sides that poems live, and this poem shows that really well. Do you want to go ahead and read it? This is uh, The Bush. Do you want to read yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, okay. I will. And I, I noticed when I did the recording for Rattle that it's very hard, some of the sounds to read, like conscious hush does not roll off the tongue. (laughs) And so I stumbled a few times. And I think that's actually an important component of the poem is that this isn't easy to say. And um, I don't know, that just added a layer for me. So I'll start with her words. Every time I thought of anger or fear or revenge, I breathed it out. I tried to think of what I was grateful for, the bush that hid me so well that even birds landed on it, the birds that were still singing, the sky that was so blue. Maya Alper, survivor of Hamas's attack on the tribe of Nova Music Festival. The extraordinary arms of the bush, trap music still echoing, the singing birds another cover, the conscious hush, The sky that was so blue above the rush, the sound of blood pooling, shots ringing, the extraordinary arms of the bush. The bush wasn't burning, the birds weren't ash, a prayer for breath. The rigid thorns clinging, birds another cover, the conscious hush. Lungs instead of terror, the labored wish to survive. Birds that landed kept going, the extraordinary arms of the bush. The roar of explosives, the forceful push of gratitude against anger. Morning birds, another cover, the conscious hush. The thorns, the sky, the breath, the birds, the bush. The hidden body contorted, living. The extraordinary arms of the bush. Birds, another cover, the conscious hush. Yeah, it's just a great poem, great way to to transport you to that scene. And what really is the thing that works so great, I think, is the repetition in the Villanelle form. That, that's the sense of time, you know, of how long the wait would be in the bush, you know, waiting for, for to survive is such a, a powerful thing. And really well done. Thanks for sharing that, Alicia. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yep. Thanks so much. Have a good night. You too. 
Yeah, so that was uh, Alicia Rebecca Myers with The Bush, uh, this Sunday's poem on Poets Respond. And we're going to take a quick break and go to our main guest, uh, Mary Ann Corbett. So sit tight, and I'll be right back with more poetry. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Like I said, today's guest is Mary Ann Corbett. Uh, she grew up in McLean, Virginia, and now lives in St. Paul, Minnesota. She worked for almost 30 years for the Minnesota Letters Legislature. Uh, trained as a medievalist and linguist, she holds a doctorate in English from the University of Minnesota. Though she wrote poems as a young person, she largely left creative writing during the decades when she did scholarly work, took care of a family, and worked full-time. One of her poems is included in the Best American Poetry 2018. Um, she's the author of six books of poetry and two chapbooks. The most recent book is right here with a lovely title. I love that title, The O in the Air. Um, here she is, Mary Ann Corbett. Hey, Mary Ann, how are you doing today? I am well, and thank you very much for having me, Tim. Yeah, it's really my pleasure. You know, as someone who um, I really enjoy formal poetry and wish there was more, and so anytime we have a guest that, that wrote sonnets for us and they have a book, I really want them on so we can have more formal poetry going on. And so it's really great to have you uh, for that reason alone. And then, of course, um, having one of the poems we published in Best American Poetry is always fun, too. Um, so it's a double pleasure to have you. And this book is great as well. I love the title, The O in the Air. Um, before we read, maybe, um, a poem. Do you want to explain a little bit where the title came from? How shall I tell this briefly? <laughs> a long time ago, Mary Merriam, another of the poets who was a great contributor on the poetry site Eratosphere, invited people to write poems in a particular form involving sh a short line, very few lines, and a particular rhyme scheme. I wrote the poem that is now the closing poem of the book that has the tagline, God is the question, the O in the air. And that's where I got my title. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's great. It's just a, it's a lovely title. It's one of those ones that makes you, I mean, really excited to read the book. And I was really curious about it. Um, do you want to read the, uh, the opening poem, Backstory? Here we go, backstory. It has a long epigram. There is a category of Northern European art in which a panoramic view, often a landscape, is the principal subject, while a classical or biblical scene appears as a distant detail. The foregrounds are ablaze with the mundane a Renaissance reality, but real, though magic with the North's painterly light. Take Bruegel's. Auden did, although we question these days if it was Bruegel's, or one might ponder Tenier's. Up front, the world and the flesh. So solid you think of stepping into the canvas to the plowed ground or hefting the armor's weight. Yet in the distance, a few brush strokes of fable, the boy with wings, the prisoner freed by the angel, mere specks you have to sift for with attention, yank the scene by its ears and flip it over as if to ask, what strange spell are you under that you go dazzled by life's pure distraction and daylight's days? 
Do not fall prey to the demon who soothes you with the steadiness of fact. Look here, the whole scene's leavened with this lightness. Step back and stare at the mist beyond this frame, these layers of ground earth and mineral spirit. It's there if you look past mere vision's weakness. The question, always haunted by its answer. What if the world you learned in flame and darkness is apprehended only by these fancies? What if the whole of it is heavenly? Yeah, and that is a great opening poem backstory. Um, you know, with so much going on in the background, of course, at all times, and tying into the title in that last poem, too. Um, so much of this book is about prayer, and I always think of poetry as prayer. I mean, I think it's a kind of, um, for me, a secular kind of prayer, but it's a way of paying attention and sort of speaking to the mystery of the world and, and you know, engaging with it and sort of engaging with it directly through through language, which is what prayer really is, too. How much of that... Uh, comes in as far as what you consider to be poetry. Is that what you think you're doing sort of with all poems? Are all poems a kind of prayer for you? All poems, when we're writing them, are pretty intense. And I would be willing to call it prayer. In this particular book, there's so much, though, that's that leaps out of other spiritual practice um, it starts in prayer, or it starts in liturgy, or it starts in liturgical music, which is something I was involved in for many, many years. So I think this is sort of the fruit of other kinds of prayer. Mm. In a way, though, the book is a vehicle for the many poems I found I had written that take the form of prayer, that even start out, oh, Lord. Um, a lot of them are my attempts to duke it out with God, if you'll pardon the phrasing. Yeah, and, and I think that, that duking it out with God, that wrestling with God is a sense of what religion really is. You know, I think there's this sort of idea that, that faith is about having, you know, faith. <laughs> Maybe that's the problem in the words. But, but faith is really a wrestling. It's a struggle. Uh, with with the concepts of a higher power and what that what that would mean and what that means for your life and how to engage with it and so I think um, you know a struggle is a kind of prayer too so I think it, it fits perfectly with um, with that way of being. There are people who think that you need to be submissive to and and I mean that's I believe what Islam means submission. Um, I have not achieved submission. I struggle a lot. Wrestling is not a bad term for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm on record, if you will, as being a, a struggling, not quite there, still working at it, Catholic. Mm -hmm. um, so, so how did poetry come into being in, in your life? You, you mentioned in your, in your bio that long gap um, where you were focusing more on you know, your career and raising a family and um, what place did poetry have and from what point? When did you first fall in love with poetry? Oh, I first fell in love with poetry very early in my life. And I first really started grappling with it probably at 13 when we had uh, a long and uh, 
very detailed poetry unit in eighth grade. And that's when I learned a lot of specific things about form and about meter. And I'm extremely grateful for what Sister Walter in eighth grade Catholic school did for me in that particular grade. Mm -hmm. So that was the start of it. Um, and then I decided that I was going to uh, study intensely very early poetry in the undergrad years and that I was going to specialize in medieval poetry and Old and Middle English in graduate school. And I was not writing poetry then, I was just studying it. Uh, and then, you know, as I said, there were many, many years when I just was too busy. Things uh, erupted, if you will, uh, when both of my children were off at college and I was having a particularly difficult time at work, experiencing a lot of resistance to things I was trying to accomplish at the office. Uh, and that fight, if you will, came out in, in poems, mm -hmm. uh, which were terrible at the start, <laughs> the way most people's are. Uh, so I was very grateful to find Eratosphere and get advice and help and encouragement. Uh, and it went from there. And my first book was published in 2012. And as you said, uh, now there are six of them. Yeah, and it's interesting. It's so, you know, it's a frequent story that you hear that it's when, you know, we have times that are difficult personally that we turn to poetry because there's so much to process. Um, and it's interesting too, it feels to me, you know, looking back at, at medieval poetry, it seems to me that there's a the purpose that's very different, um, you know, than what we do now. Do, do you have a sense of that? That that, um, you know, in the medieval times and even just pre-industrial revolution, that the the poetry was more about storytelling and performance, and then at some point it turned inward and and almost as a psychological tool um, for exploring your own understanding of the world. Whereas in the past, it was more of um, a way to share stories. So do, you, do you get that sense, like looking back, you know, being, it's not often I get to talk to a medieval scholar. Um, do, you, do you get that sense looking back at medieval poetry that, that there was a different sort of purpose behind the poetry? The world of medieval poetry is absolutely huge. And I can certainly think of lots of strands of medieval poetry that are, as you say, narrative. Beowulf, as you know, all of the the epics <laughs> uh, or the romances, uh, the lays of Marie de France, uh, the Walter von der Volkelheide, um, the German epics, uh, the Nibelungenlied. Those are you know many strands. Mm -hmm. Uh, but there are, as you say, the performative kinds um, and the clever stuff like the Old English lyrics of the Exeter book. Uh, I should have prepared better for this particular <laughs> No, it's answer. all right. It's all right. But what I'm trying to say is um, let's not generalize mm -hmm. the way I think you wanted to. It's yeah. really all over the map. Mm -hmm. And what was it that drew you to that? Was there some certain thing that, that you fell in love with there and, and you know drew you to want to read more of that particular time period? I think I can even pinpoint 
the day and the time and the poem in junior year AP English when I came upon in the fat anthology that we were using the translation of Gawain and the Green Knight. Mm, yeah, I love that. That and, was the first uh, thing from that era that I loved too, yeah. And I still remember the lines of that particular translation. So runs the year in yesterday's many. And I was just blown away by the alliterative form mm -hmm. and the the role of those those rough accentual lines. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a rhythm that was new to me, and the intensity of that alliteration was also new to me, and it tended to get stuck in the brain. And uh, I'm still a little obsessive about the four-stress alliterative line. There aren't a lot of poets who write a lot of poems in the four-stress alliterative line, but um, I love it. I do too much of it. I. I'm still producing those. <laughs> why, did, why is it that you think that we don't do that as much anymore? Because it is, when you read that, you hear the music of that. You, you get that same sense of verse that you would get from iambic pentameter, but through the alliteration instead. Uh, why do you think that that sort of has fallen out of favor and, and, you know, we're more, if we do formal poetry at all, it's more pentameter, just iambics in general, or, um, you know, the meters that we use? Our ears are just not trained to it. Um, we know how to hear iambic pentameter, but we don't always know how to grab onto a scansion of something that isn't da-da, 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 da-da. Mm -hmm. uh, it's more variable. You have to grasp it. Yeah. Uh, well, let's hear... Let's hear another poem uh, from the book. This is, um, we want to make sure we get through a good number. And uh, the next one he had is Overture. And that's fortunate because this one actually does use some of that <laughs> rough, accentual, alliterative form. I sort of wish that I had kept the epigram that I originally had, which explained that Overture is from ouverture, or apertura in Latin, meaning opening. Hmm. Be praised, Lord, for propped open windows. In the muggy meanness of mid-July, they speak reassurance. In the next yard, high voices yammer, small boys brandishing brave new insults from the old playbook while otherwhere across the alley the tantrum wail of a wild toddler repeats da capo will there be this year young housemates warring screen doors that womp wheels grinding gravel in this heat, wake us. Send us street theater at three in the morning. Mad lovers battling over jealousies, bills, the whole grand opera. Watch now in mercy, those others mum in the iced quiet of their central air. They're curtained sorrows 
Yeah, the beautiful ending there. That was Overture, again, from the O in the air. And you can feel that alliterative verse, uh, which we don't see very often at all. I can think of one poem in Rattle um, that's in that form, but that, um, you know, praise Lord for propped open windows and the muggy meanness of mid-July. It's it's that, that, that alliteration right there that governs every line. And it is such a beautiful, especially performative, you know, to read out loud. It sounds beautifully to hear those sounds repeating. And it gets back to the, the heart of what poetry is, which is just is patterns repeating and making meaning out of those patterns. Um, and it's a really interesting way to go. Uh, what is the, the reception been to your poems like that? Do people, um, you know, talk about the write in that uh, alliterative form? Or um, is it something that sort of goes unnoticed usually? When you talk about the reaction, I'm afraid that the first thing that comes to my mind is the comments of the judge uh, when I won the Richard Wilbur Award, who admonished me that there were too many poems in for stress alliterative lines in the manuscript, mm-hmm. and I needed to cut some of them. <laughs> there are people who feel that you can't have more than one in a book, and I'm always going to break that rule. Oh, well, that seems like a ridiculous rule to me, because I love those poems. Um, so so you mentioned, um, you know, getting back to poetry after that gap in life. I'm always interested in that. Uh, were you reading poetry at the time? Were you, was it like no poetry, no poetry, and then you got into poetry all of a sudden when you had the need for it? Or were you always a reader of poetry? I was always a kind of uh, on-again, off-again reader of poetry, and I tended to read older things, uh, classic things. What really got me going again was a marvelous, fortuitous accident. I was singing in the choir of the Cathedral of St. Paul, and I was bumming rides from Anna George Meek, who is a poet. And while she was ferrying me back and forth, I would grill her about what makes a poem good. (laughs) And she was encouraging, and she shared a lot about her experiences writing poems so that I got used to the idea of (laughs) the ordeal of submitting and rejection. Um, so that I wasn't afraid to dip my toe into that world. Mm-hmm. And what so would I you, went ahead. Yeah, what Sorry. would you say? I mean, that's always something that I'm curious about. What would you say is it that makes a poem good? There are so many things. Um, if you were to focus on, say, the level of the line, alliteration might do it, a pun might do it, an interesting word might do it, Um, A nice enjambment might do it, just so there's something on every line that zings, that keeps you going. It can also be narrative that you glom onto and don't want to stop. Yeah, well, that's a really good way to put it, too. I mean, that, that sense of, uh, to me, it's, it's also memory, you know, something that you want to remember, that, that has that, like, need to lodge itself in your mind uh, works as a poem, too. Um, let's hear another poem, speaking of good poems. Um, and and uh, the next one up is The Museum of Op- or American Opulence. It's a great title. Sorry, I'm flipping pages here. It's 33, if you're looking. Got it. I guess I want to mention that the first two poems that I read were from the first 
of the book's three sections. And that section is mostly, shall we say, um, confessional, uh, mostly about the experience of the family that one has in childhood, which is often rather confusing to the kid because there are, are so many things that kids are not told. This is from the second section of the book, which is about the family that we establish in adulthood. This second section of the book also progresses from early married life to late married life, and it goes through the seasons. So here we are in winter and in, uh, as you'll see, newlywedness. The Museum of American Opulence. We own too much. I'm thinking about a time in the days when all we had in the world was each other a one-bedroom apartment, some wedding presents, and a heated waterbed in a homemade frame. Carless, we'd scrounge a dollar forty in change, stand in the mean wind chill of early December, climb snowpile alps to board, and take the six downtown to the city's most luke's department store to look, to gorge ourselves on staring at glitter, at crystal chandeliers, at spotless chrome, at the glassed-in cases where jewelry sat on velvet, and then upstairs in housewares, the hundred patterns of china and silver, the piles of towels and blankets, the wild abundance long foretold by the prophets and certain to be our own if we lived right. And then we'd bus home, frozen and empty-handed, red-faced, laughing, tumbling into the bed, owning nothing, practicing pure desire. Yeah, another great poem. That was the Museum of American Opulence from The O in the Air, the new book by Marianne Corbett. And uh, that, that's such an interesting topic um, now, the, the uh, age of the abundance that we're living in and sort of what that does to the soul. And I always I think of like, you know, poetry being a kind of spiritual practice, a kind of prayer is sort of a balm against that. But then I think, hey, wait a minute, I have books coming out of my ears. Everywhere I look, there's more poetry books. And so maybe, um, maybe that idea is misguided. What do you think about, um, about, uh, about how much we take material possessions for granted, you know? And, uh, and this is the world that we live in. Right now, my husband and I are trying to divest of a lot of possessions. And it is a struggle. And we wonder how on earth we amassed so much stuff. And part of it is the effect of having lived in the same house for almost 37 years. Um, so we go about taking things to Goodwill and to Tech Dump and to wherever. And there's a poem in the book called Hoarder about the process of divesting not only of physical things, but of memories you want to get rid of, experiences you would like to put aside. Uh, it's all a struggle. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I mean, we had uh, um, Jane Hirschfield last week, of course, a, a famous Buddhist poet. And, you know, the idea of non-attachment and, uh, um, you know, letting go is the whole heart of that entire philosophy and religion. And uh, it, it's interesting. I mean, poetry is the one thing I can't let go of. I feel like, you know, if it's a novel, I feel like, oh, I won't go back to that. I know I read it. I'm done and for the most part. But a poet, book of poetry, it's so hard to get rid of because I, I might want to read that again someday. And that's the, the beauty of poetry, but also sort of a curse when you start to have bookshelves and bookshelves that are running out of room. <laughs> I'm trying to buy ebooks and I'm trying to divest of things that I haven't looked at for a while. And especially when it comes to um, contributors' copies of magazines and subscription copies of magazines, what I like to do is make a pile of them and then offer the pile on social media to anybody who wants them. I'll mail them. Um, I especially want to send books and magazines to those who teach and who will share them with students. Mm -hmm. And I've done this a bunch of times now. And maybe now more people will know that I do that and be on the lookout for those <laughs> yeah, offers. Yeah, that would be good. And one of the things I like to do is leave them places randomly, like leave them in an auto shop or leave them in a, you know, instead of the waiting room at the doctor's office, leave a book of poetry. And um, I asked one time a doctor um, poet that we have, uh, we published, whether or not, like why they don't use subscribe to rattle for their waiting room. And they said, if I did, it would disappear <laughs> and I would have no books because people would walk away with it. And that's what always happens if I leave them there. But I think that's a good thing. So if we leave our poetry around and let it disappear, I'll walk off with people who might need it. I think that's a good thing to do, too. Um, but anyway, let's hear uh, the next poem, too, which is a similar type of topic about letting go. Uh, this is a responsorial psalm for the beneficiary of my mother's will on page 90, if you're looking. Before I start reading, I want to explain just a little bit there are a number of denominations that have regularly as parts of the liturgy responsive reading of a psalm. And it might be um, a lector or a cantor singing verses and, uh, and a congregation uttering the refrain, or it might be two parts of the congregation alternating. And that's the model that this poem is built on, you'll see when the poem is in front of you on the screen, the little symbols for verse and response. The verses are all taken from bits and pieces of Psalm 16 that I've been hearing for years and years and years as part of the liturgy. Um, the responses are all my reactions to the process of the distribution as I acted as executor to my mother's will and as the recipient of lots of her physical things. This talks mostly about her much prized collection of teacups. So here we go. Responsorial Psalm for the Beneficiary of My Mother's Will. O oh Lord, you are my inheritance unearthed from murky records, set down at tables where too little was said by kinfolk who hedged their memories. Yea, I have in you a goodly heritage. 
in a will laid out like an Edwardian banquet. Its places set by gloved hands, precision ready to shatter. In you, who are my portion and cup, my place at a feast set by death, a dinner announced by unnerving letters from courts, full of strange demands like the dreams of prophets. My cup of blessing, delivered in the fullness of time by UPS in a corrugated carton whose breached sides leak bubble wrap, and unpacked at last, gold-rimmed, daintily painted, bone-white shimmer of longing for an ease there was never enough of. O Lord, you uphold my lot, which I hoard now at the back of a cupboard, accreting a fuzz of dust and kitchen grease, a richness, O Lord, too breakable for the living. And that was responsorial psalm for the beneficiary of my mother's will from the O in the air. Um, one of the things we were talking about, sort of the purpose of poetry a couple times, and one of the things that I think about poetry is doing is sort of unraveling taboos, because there's some things that we don't speak honestly about, and death and sex are, the, are two of the big ones. People say, why is there so much death and sex and rattle? And it's because it's the stuff that we don't engage with honestly for most of our lives. And, and so that's what poets tend to write about, because we're, we're speaking the truth to the things where the truth isn't fully spoken, is maybe as a way to think about poetry. Um, so it's really interesting to see a run of poems about this in the book. Um, what is your, your sense of, you know, your relationship to death? How has that changed how you think about it over time? In a way, it was the last illnesses and deaths of my parents that gestated many, 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 many of all of the poems of all of my books. And a lot of them are concentrated in this particular book, in particular, the Things that sprang from my mother's death are in this book. Uh, and there are, as you say, explorations of that problem from many angles. One of the angles is finally getting into the stories that she wouldn't ever tell me about her marriage before she married my father. Um, there were lots of secrets and there's a poem, a long poem called Knowledge in there that tells the entire story. Mm -hmm. um, let's see. So speaking, uh, well, yeah, speaking of uh, questions. About death, particularly <laughs> not just the death of my mother. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. When um, when people were, I'm sorry to say it this way, dying left and right in mm -hmm. 2020, there was a lot to grapple with and that's why uh, that's why the poem Buying a Plot in Plague Time <laughs> is in this book. <laughs> Although it wasn't originally in the manuscript, I added it uh, before we finally went to press. Mm -hmm. uh, well, why don't you go ahead and read that? Um, yes, I will. And it is on page 68. Pardon all this flipping. <laughs> no problem. And it says after Larkin, because this is 
exactly on the model, the rhyme scheme, the metrical pattern of Larkin's Obad. Buying a plot in plague time. Shouldn't the moment be more, well, dramatic? Shouldn't it toll like Dunn's dead bell? But no, mere paper rustling. It's a burst of static that stutters off to silence while late snow alights outside and melts forgettably, a numb reminder. Nothing I can see in the small print addresses dread or God or love. Somber reflection? Not a bit. Forms in quadruplicate, white over yellow, pink and goldenrod, for a dead end. No hymns, no holiness, no funeral. Every gathering spreads the plague. Perfunctory forms depress me, and they press me now because I've left so much so vague. When until now has dying loomed so real, I shrank from my dead flesh? Or when did I feel this keen to leave less horror for my son and daughter, save them shock and awe about choices when mine run out? I mutter grimly, I will get this done. And still I sit here, playing my numbers game, tossing my rhyme pairs into the winds of fear. Back to the labor, back to the minor shame of shuffling off my life, check there, signed here. Earth gets my ashes, grudgingly, on terms that reek of real estate and legal firms, Transfer on death arrangements and new will, spew gray phrases, drone and drone and drone, like worrying a bone, this work to stifle terrors I can't kill. So work, bending the spirit to the letter, bowing the head at how the flesh unweaves, goes down like a stiff drink. The aches no better yet for the iron aftertaste it leaves. Here, plague, take this dull prose. Spare those I love. I sign at all the X's, and to prove my resoluteness, press hard on the pen. Scribble the check and seal the envelope. Clinging weakly to hope, I thumb the stamp on. No one says amen. And that was buying a plot in plague time uh, from the air. Oh, the O in the air. Um, and uh, people have mentioned already um, how wonderful your endings are. And, um, you know, in the chat window. And what is it? How do you come to an ending? You know, speaking of death and the death of a poem, maybe. Um, but where do you find the end of a poem? How do you know when it's complete and when it hits in the right way? Is that something that, that you work at more? Or is it something that comes to you sort of naturally in the process? I was having a, a Facebook um, message chat not too long ago with Haley Lighthouser. And she was looking for an end and I had to sheepishly explain that I usually know where I'm starting 
exactly, and where I'm ending, exactly. And it's this mushy middle that I have to struggle for. Uh, but um, I know when what happens at the end because I usually plot it beforehand and have to figure out how to get there. Yeah, that's really interesting. I always feel like um, there's sort of two ways to write. One is like hacking out through the bush, having no idea where you're going or where it's going to lead. And the other is sort of seeing the pinnacle up on the hill. You don't know how to climb the top of the mountain to get there, but you're just going up and up knowing where you're going. And um, Sometimes I feel like I'm breaking Robert Frost's rule or dictum that says, no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. Well, I'm not surprised where I'm going to end because I'm pre-plopped a thing. Yeah, but the surprise is how you get there, though. You know, that journey up the cliff face me, to get yes, to the top. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, that still works. So, um, and, and so many times, um, you know, the, the rhyme at the end is something that really clicks the poem home. And here we have um, the my resoluteness press hard on the pen, and then it ends, um, you know, I thumb the stamp, no one says, says amen. And and it's one of those poems where the rhyme is is so well done that you almost don't notice that it's rhyming until you get to that you know solid ending and you're like oh yeah the whole poem was rhyming wasn't it? Um, is that one of the things you try to do? Do you think do you think rhyming at the end of a poem strengthens it? If it's a rhyming poem, yes, it is, unless you've tried to veil it for some reason, mm-hmm. and then there are lots of things you can do with the rhyme that does hide it. You can use envelope rhyme where the rhymes are not right close together and you don't have that click shut like a box, two of them right at the end the way a Shakespearean sonnet has. Mm -hmm. I like Shakespearean sonnets because they do wallop you with it at the end. (laughs) Mm Yeah, well, there's definitely all kinds. Um, so if anybody has any questions for Marianne, um, leave them in the chat windows, either on Facebook or YouTube. I'm watching them both. And um, somebody already asked, uh, where was it? It was, um, yeah, it was Jonathan Rongan asked if you could talk about your book covers and the titles, especially Credo and Breath Control, which I actually have over there. I should have brought them out um, or maybe in a different room. But um um, how do you choose the photographs for the cover, et cetera? So, so can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I think Gianthi, and, and this in particular, too, is a beautiful book. I'll show the cover again for everybody who's watching and not listening. Um, the O in the Air is a great title, first of all. We talked about that a little bit. And then the sort of monochromatic blue on white, which you kind of can't see because of the, the way the lighting effect is right now. But this is the snow-white landscape of Minnesota, I assume. Um, and then the O in the Air, sort of a two-color palette. A really beautiful book. How did the the how do the the covers come to be? Because they do um, all your books have been great. Uh, those covers have all come about uh, very differently. Um, my first book, Breath Control, I had to find the the p- photograph, and I I knew I wanted a bubble. I was afraid that was a cliche, but I happened to find uh, in Wiki commons and free, uh, a bubble that reflected a house. And since that particular book talks about domestic issues a lot and also talks about the kind of control and holding in that women have to execute all the time, um, that was the perfect thing for it. Um, Cradle for the checkout line in winter uh, since that was an able muse book, um, most of the work to find an appropriate cover was done by my editor, Alex Peppel, 
Uh, he gave me choices, but that was the one that we both settled on. Uh, and it focused on the wintry poems that come early on in the book. Mm -hmm. My third book, Medieval, again, I had to find a painting that would reflect both the concentration on the Middle Ages that is the heart of that book and something that talked about, frankly, evil, because there's a lot of struggle and resistance in that book. And so I found... Uh, a 15th century woman in a hedon who is severely, um, her hair is pushed way back mm -hmm. and her face is extremely frowny. <laughs> she's not happy with anything she's doing. Street View again is one that uh, Alex Peppel helped me find. And uh, then there was In Code and that's another Alex Peppel choice. This one, uh, is a photograph taken by Sherry O'Keefe that she just happened to post on Facebook. And I said, aha, that's the, the image of threatening unfriendly weather, uh, mysterious weather that I need. And she graciously let me use it. Yeah, very nice. So yeah, a different range, but they all make such great, great covers. It's a really wonderful series of books. Um, one of the things we haven't talked about yet is your time in the Minnesota legislature, 35 years uh, working there. Uh, what was it that you did, and did it relate to poetry at all? Is there something that you took from that that you use in poetry now? Um, if I may refer people to my book, In Code, it's kind of all there. Um, I was the only non-attorney on the professional staff, and I was hired in order to help attorneys write plain English, but that obviously didn't take all my time. So what I spent the bulk of my time doing was managing a group of indexers. And we created the indexes and the finding aids for the Minnesota statutes, the laws of Minnesota, and the Minnesota rules. And those are many volume compendia, and their indexes are are fat volumes by themselves. Yeah. There was a lot of work to do in a short editorial period. So it was a lot to manage. Um, that's what I did. <laughs> and it was highly unpoetic. Mm -hmm. uh, that may have been part of the impetus to get to do something with poetry again. I, it was overcoming the unpoetic force of things. <laughs> Well, the administrative process, yeah, the, of, uh, you know, sort of records keeping and tracking. There's so much of that with submissions anyway, <laughs> at least, right? Having to, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, well, let's hear another poem. Um, I think the next one uh, we had is Another Night on, on 89. Okay, that's on page 89. Yeah. Here we go. Another night, another load of corpses jostled out of the reeds by college rowers, according to the local crime reportage, sinking, pack-laden, into the Normandy riptide, deep in a grainy late-night documentary. Blue-lipped, mottled, chill on a coroner's slab in this week's 23rd detective thriller, 
or mud bloody in Bosworth Fieldian chaos. Shakespeare's histories, it hardly matters. Bullets, gurglings, screams, ominous music. The screen supplies us everything but the odor. Does this explain why I was unprepared when after hours of sitting beside my mother alone, flown hurriedly in from far away, hours of rosaries, songs, calm classical radio with no response apart from her changeless breathing. I ducked into the hospice kitchen thinking, might it be safe to break for a bit? Wolf down my leftovers of spinach and cheese croissant. And she, with her usual undramatic methods, met God while I was paying no attention. Yeah, another one of those great endings and a great title too. Another Night, Another Load of Corpses uh, from The O in the Air by Marianne Corbett. Um, and your poems throughout, we've seen so many poems today um, that have such great, rich lines. There's a lot of, um, of, of concrete content in the lines, a lot of texture and, and sights and, and feeling to them. What is your writing process like? Um, does that come through a lot of revising and, and sort of adding those details? Or does it come in the process of listening to the music and letting the poems happen as they will? I revise a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, looking at my first drafts is often quite painful. <laughs> uh, and and I, on occasion, I have made the mistake of sending out a first draft and being told, um, that wasn't the one we accepted. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I revise a lot. It's a very rare experience for a poem to come to me almost whole. Although one that did uh, was the one that Rattle published that was in Best American Poetry. Uh, and I forget its entire title. Um, so do I. It's pretty long. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Prayer Concerning uh, the New, uh, More Accurate Translation of Certain Prayers. There you go. That's um, it. <laughs> yeah, that one walloped me and it walloped me because i was so very angry hmm. uh, but no most of the time it's a change here a change there until finally something takes it takes final shape and how do you know you know about of those rough drafts um like what percentage ends up being a finished poem that you want to publish and, and how do you know that you've got something that you want to work with I hate to confess this, but I often make the mistake of sending something in too soon. Mm -hmm. And then after several rejections, uh, for various definitions of several, mm -hmm. uh, I fix it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, later on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and so do you have any advice for, for revising? Like, is, there, is there a techniques that you use or anything you go about, uh, you know, adding those details and making the poem tighter and more crisp like they are? It, it's the same old advice that everyone always gives and that I'm so bad at taking. <laughs> Give it time. Put it away for a while. 
let it be, come back to it and back to it and back to it uh, and tinker. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. Well, patience is a virtue. Uh, that's for sure. Um, let me say uh, now, uh, this is the time where I should say that uh, if you like what you're seeing, please do click the like button. Uh, wherever you're watching there, so there's a way you can like give it a thumbs up or a like or something. And that helps poetry spread around all over the place. More people will see it in their feeds if you click the like button. There's a lot more people watching than likes, which is always the case. I know a lot of people are you know don't log in or have accounts, but if you do, do click the like button wherever you're watching. Um, uh, let, let's do the next poem. And the next topic um, that, that sort of comes up in the book are family relationships and secrets. And we have a, a good number of poems about that. Um, is there anything you want to say about that before you read, uh, read one of them? Uh, well, as I said earlier, there were a lot of things uh, that my mother didn't tell me about her past. And there are poems specifically about that. But this is one that just hints at what is to come. Uh, and I'm thinking you want me to read Ghazal for a Bottle of Shalimar, yeah, 1956. Exactly. Mm -hmm. The clear amber scent in its bottle, its glint from the top of the vanity. Cut crystal flutes with a frosted glass stopper catching the sun on her vanity. The glamorous dreams of our mother, unspoken to curious children, were sharp as the quarter moon curve of that bottle enshrined on the vanity. What were they guarding? What secrets? And how would a child understand them? And what was I thinking, small magpie lured on by the glitter of vanity? Wreckage of beauties, the spill, the wet, the gray film on the rosewood. I was the firstborn, the first to drive thorns through the heart of her vanity. Painfully, mothers forgive. On the mountain with seven stories, how long will the granite of penitence weigh on the spine of my vanity? And what do my children remember? What hauntings by anger and tears does my memory hide from itself in the metal-bound chest of my vanity? Sixty years on, and the stain-mottled dresser now broods in my bedroom, breathing regret and my name, and the words of the preacher, vanity. And that was a guzzle for a bottle of Shalimar, 1946. Uh, 56. 56, sorry. <laughs> 56, from the O in the air. Yeah, thanks, Marianne. Um, and um, so let's see. I had a question I wanted to pass along. Um, where did it go? Um, well, I'll ask you instead. So, and, uh, and I'll look at it as you talk, because there was a question here that was good. Um, but so, so talking about family secrets, um, how do you feel about revealing f secrets in a poem? Is that something you have any reservation about? Or um... I had big reservations <laughs> about writing knowledge, and I waited to publish it until my mother had passed away. Uh, and, of course, I didn't put it in a book until long after she was gone. Mm -hmm. uh, and I felt fortunate that she was 
so totally unaware of the world of computers that she was never going to find it. <laughs> uh, after all, these were things that she didn't talk to me about. Some of them I had to learn from other family members. Some of them I only learned from her personal papers that became mine as child with power of attorney uh, when she was in her last illness. Hmm. So, yeah, I didn't feel good about it. Yeah. Um, did you talk about, I mean, those were complete secrets that you didn't know about at all? Or, or were there things that you talked about a little but didn't know? Were you wondering about that until you found those documents? I have to confess that I was terribly naive and should have figured it out way before I did. But as is revealed in the poem called Knowledge, there was this terrible scene regarding who would receive communion at my wedding. And that was when my mother had to explain to me that she had been married and divorced before mm -hmm. she married the man who would be my father. Yeah. Um, well, let's hear another poem um, uh, around that topic. October is the one you had next on page uh, 48. Page 48. Again, this is from the section of the book that's about the families we form when we're grown-ups. October. I fail at them, those scenes where beauty is married to fear. I have failed before with this one. How can I make it clear when the moment itself was a blur? My son and I, that night, stepped through the warm, wet air that had magicked every light to a wide, all-hallowing halo. He said, I think he was ten, still with his clear soprano, it's lovely out here. And then the edge of every nimbus, pale gold through a fog scrim, shivered, knowing that beauty soon would be bullied out of him. Hmm. That was October. Again, another poem from The O in the Air. Um, so you, we talked a little bit about, about your love for medieval poetry. Uh, what are your favorite contemporary poets? Uh, what are the poets that you like to read right now, especially with a formal bent? Um, are there certain favorites of yours? Well, you can fault me for living in the past, but my favorite, the books I keep right by my bed that I continue to dip into are the collected poems of Richard Wilbur and Dick Davies and Anthony Hecht, and now the selected of Alicia Stallings. Mm -hmm. and, and what is it about that group of people that, that you love the most and maybe try to model in your own writing? They do form so perfectly. Mm -hmm. um, I fudge a lot. I use slant rhyme and near rhyme and lots of things that are formal but that are not rhyming, that foreground meter rather than rhyme. And those folks rhyme and i'm very fond of i i think i'm attributing this correctly to alicia stallings of the fact that rhyme frees the poem poet from what he wants to say mm -hmm. if you're focusing on finding the perfect rhyming word the unexpected rhyming word you'll go off in a direction that you hadn't foreseen 
and get a better better poem out of it that way. Yeah, I was thinking about that recently because of um, I read an article about um, house and sleep. You know, we think of dreams as sort of the imagination just sort of running wild. But it turns out that there's sort of this um, system test that the brain is doing where there's another time when you're awake where you can, um, um, you know, move one muscle at a time. And so while you're sleeping, that REM sleep is actually these twitching of like just one muscle here and there. And that is what stimulates the randomness of your dreams is actually this like sort of systems test that your brain is doing. And so I think that's kind of why dreams get so wild is because there's this sort of randomness added to it all the time. And it occurred to me that that's exactly what formal poetry is doing because you don't, you have to come up with a rhyme and it's making you think of things that you wouldn't have thought of otherwise. So it's like injecting this um, constant sort of stimulation from out of surprising places and then the poems go in surprising places too i think it's a really interesting comparison um and you find that even the interesting thing is though you were talking about writing toward the ending um and do you still find i mean you're still finding surprise on the journey right like like how you get to the ending is almost like the path is the surprise right and so do you still find that when you're writing formal formally that you have that injection of surprise from the rhyme and, and form like that I talked a little earlier about the mushy middle, mm -hmm. and I do have to resist in the middle of things uh, the temptation to be lazy and not to actually work for that unexpected thing. Um, and that's what often takes the time in revision to cross out that thing that was too predictable and to go ahead and reach for the different rhyme word, the thing that's going to keep people going the unexpected word mm -hmm. yeah i mean that is a great that's such the unexpected is so important because we set up these expectations and sound and then we subvert them and that's the surprise and the pleasure of it um well let's finish out we have one last poem and the timing's perfect so let's close it out with a uh, circadian lament and that's on page 34 if you're looking. 34 i wanted to close with something that was a little more upbeat uh and this goes out to my daughter, who's not a baby anymore, but boy, did she give me trouble way back when. <laughs> Circadian lament sung to a wakeful baby. Go back to sleep. You've made a slight mistake switching your days and nights around this way. The time will come for nights you spend awake, for cough and colic, ear and stomach ache. Though now you babble charmingly and play the infant hours away, a light mistake. There will be bitter medicines to take some night. Take love, its wide-eyed thrills one day, its clammy sweats the next. Take nights awake, your soul in shreds, your bank account at stake, your eyelids propped with stale cafe au lait searching the stars for some obscure mistake when futures cloud and omens turn opaque and panic makes you pace the floors and pray there will be no escape from nights awake i warn you and my wisdom doesn't make one whit of difference seize the night you say in coo and babble Oh, well, my mistake. Instruct me in the joys of nights awake. 
Yeah, that, that might be my favorite poem in the book. So I'm really glad you chose to close with that circadian lament sung to a wakeful baby. And you can just feel how the form carries the poem and, and the tune sings it through so beautifully. Um, and that was from the O in the Air again, the newest book just out from Marianne Corbett. Uh, thanks, Marianne, for being a guest tonight. It was great talking to you. Very informative and, and a beautiful book. Thank you, Tim, for everything. Yeah, definitely. My pleasure. Have a good night. You too. And what's going on? That was Marianne Corbett. Uh, you can find all six of her books um, at her website, which is really well done, at MarianneCorbett.com. It's spelled like you see it uh, on the screen. I'll put that up right there really quick. Marianne Corbett, Mary, M-A-R-Y-A-N-N, Corbett, C-O-R-B-E-T-T, uh, .com. MarianneCorbett.com if you'd like to find this book and all the others by Marianne. Now it's time for the open lines. We're going to take a quick break and go to them. But let me tell you how it works first. I'm going to get the invitation link here. I'm going to paste it into the chat windows. But before I do that, um, go to open mic. That's open M-I-C at rattle.com. Well, don't go there. Email the poem there. I guess that's the way to say it. Um, Email the poem that you want to read. One poem, two page max. Try to be a short, you know, we have a lot of people to get into, so try to have a short poem if you can. Um, Two pages is the max. Email it to open mic. That's open M-I-C at rattle.com so I can pull it up and show it on the screen as you read. And then join the Zoom link, which I am posting in the chat windows. I have gotten rid of that heart button, too, thanks to some suggestions by Dick Westheimer's. Thanks, Dick. So I can actually pin the, uh, the Zoom link on, the, uh, on YouTube like I used to. Um, that heart button was always getting in the way. So that is there on Facebook. That is there on YouTube. And I will be right back with more poetry. So sit tight and uh, see you in a minute. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Uh, as you see, uh, Katie Dozier is here, our prop poems editor. Hey, Katie. Hello. Good job with the quick set change. No problem. Yeah, we had to, <laughs> had to get some chairs out. So now we have chairs we can actually put close to each other, which is the problem before. Um, so the prompt for this week was to uh, write an essay, which is a poem. It was Jane Hirschfield's form. And uh, the essay is sort of, it's, it comes from the... Um, um, the scientific sort of usually for minerals but other things anytime you break down something to see its component parts that's an essay and so that's what Kate, uh, Jane Hirschfield does with her uh, her essay poems and so that was your prompt to write an essay and so what did you do Katie? Well what I did was struggle and write four <laughs> different essays and I picked believe it or not my best essay to share not my worst as it turns out so. well that's a good idea so It was definitely an interesting form to write, and I struggle with it, I think, because there's kind of like a scientific detachment in order to write it well, and it's the opposite of how I normally write. So it was interesting, and I enjoyed it, so. Okay, well, let's hear it. This is uh, Katie Dozier with To Silence, an essay. Okay. I know your deep snow, how powder can absorb every crow's cry. I know your frozen lakes, ice thick enough to run away on. Many times I tried to break through, but gave up after only a few pounds of my pickaxe. I know you never begin quite so solid, quite so frigid. First you whisper into the room, sneak a web in behind your back, a spool of silk so strong it can carry people. Sometimes you ferry them through a lifetime of if-onlys. I know your snowflakes swirl around the tops of heads. I know you are the curve on question marks, how fires curl your smoke. And I know your nemesis, speech, a jackhammer that drills down into the frigid past or rockets up to rake the plasma of the future. But you are best at staying in one place. 
I know you sit by a campfire, content just to study the orange glow dancing on faces. I know that when you hold a newborn, you let her rest away the afternoon, milk trunk, a line of drool unspooling on your bare chest. And I know for certain that these golden hours we spend skin to skin from time to time make you want to sing. Yeah, beautiful poem. And that was to silence an essay. So what was... Uh... What was the the hardest part, or what was your experience putting this kind of poem together? It was different, you know, than what both of us I think usually write. Yeah, for me, I'm always like really linking things in between, so trying to create the gaps. Like I actually wrote this without stanza breaks, and then I was like, you know, this doesn't work without stanza breaks, and really had to retool it more than normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. For me too, I was uh, I realized I was writing sort of in. Uh, with a Jane, more of a Jane Hirschfield type voice, thinking about the silence more because of the way that it breaks things down and separates them out, which sort of implies a gap. You know, you're sort of adding a gap to things that used to be mixed together is right. maybe a way of thinking yeah. about it. And so usually I, tr- I like writing sort of rushed type poems. And this instead, I, I had a little more space. I decided not to have any stanza breaks, as you can see. Oh, but there were more variation of line length so that the pauses could be longer. And it was an interesting way to go about it. But this is, um, so I, you did two silence, and so I, I hadn't written mine yet, and so I saw <laughs> yours. I said, well, I'll do two noise. So two noise, and I say, We act as though you were only a nuisance, an irritating addition to the system of being. No thing never not there. A mosquito in the ear, a buzz in the air. We only listen in your departure. When the power cuts off in the heat wave and the condenser ticks to a stop. So many sounds in the house to unnotice all at once. The hum of the fridge, the plastic fan and the computer, the transformer's static prick from the yard. And then an airplane in the distance. Children playing at the corner park. Bird calls to bird, neighbor to neighbor. A car zips by with its window down, one song in three notes. But in between each of these, your absence is the death that was before we were, the lack of even lack we all we know will come to be. Science says a little noise adds speed to a network. A quiet classroom makes it harder to learn. A hundred miles up, there is no noise above the atmosphere. There is no sound in the airless hell beneath our feet. You are a blanket within the blanket that keeps us warm. The shapeless there we press against to give us form. And so that is to noise an essay. Very nice. I think that was really effective not having the stanza breaks. I think now maybe I shouldn't have done them. I don't know. Well, I, don't know. I looked at to judgment doesn't have them and, mm-hmm. and her silence doesn't. And mm-hmm. then, uh, yeah, well, anyway, that is mine to noise an essay. Let's see what everybody else has. And um, let's go first to... Um, let's go to Carla Schwartz first in line. We have uh, 18 people here, so once again, let's try to uh, be relatively quick. But we'll, you know, we'll take our time too. Quick, quick. What does that say? Quick but careful, or something? <laughs> That's <laughs> sure. what we're gonna do. Hey, Carla, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. What a what a wonderful night of poetry so far, and I love both of your um, essays. I call them essays, not essays, but that. It's my own thing. Yeah, I think that's what uh, Jane said, and and I think maybe she's right. But when I was, uh, I did them, and and we did uh, of mRNA, and uh, that's what we called them. So that's it's like stuck in my head that way. Okay. <laughs> anyway, maybe right. it's that. Um, so this is um, very different from your guys. So this is called Crocs assay. 
lightness, the light, the evening light, the low sun in the sky, autumn light, the morning squint, your eyes light, the first time fit, the smile that comes with that first essay, first try, the smile, the crocodile smile, the holes that make a nose, the nub-inspired holes that let air through, mud through, light through, wind, the dawning that at first glance these ugly shoes could possibly be something wanted, the mind changed, altered, the re article read, the article that stated 87,000 footsteps comfortable, the article that touted airplane comfortable, the airplane that knows Crocs, welcomes them, their comfort like the bowl of porridge, the morning of an overseas flight. The embrace that comes, the embrace earned when the shoe, the gift embraced. The never take them off feeling, the climb a mountain feeling, then like the ubiquitousness of electric cars everywhere, crocked feet, sorry, crocked feet, even overseas. So together you smile, your matching feet, your sweet, comfortable toes, almost alive, murmuring to each other, your feet, his feet, your crocs, his crocs, the big to the little, airy like clothes blowing on the line. And maybe you talk about the weather, but maybe you speak about the possibility of war and somehow you feel enabled, your feet sheathed in silliness, cloaked with sound holes, open to enlightenment. Listen, the news. Wow, Carla, that was great. I love the playfulness of that and uh, and, and the use of, of Crocs yeah. and contrasted with the rhythm and the sort of mood of the poem. It was wonderful work. I love that. Yeah. You, are you going to confess that you own a pair of Crocs at this point? I do own a pair of Crocs. <laughs> I do. It's two, though, to take out the trash mm -hmm. and to go to my softball games so I can yeah. put on my cleats. And they, the, That's fair. Yeah. That's and can... true also. And it's true also that I steal them when I have to go outside for you brief do. moments. It's true. Yeah. But yeah, that's a great poem. Thanks, Carla. <laughs> Thank you so much. Take care. Yep, take care. That's Carla Schwartz with Crocs Essay. But let's get to some people we haven't heard from before. Emma Goldman, uh, sure, something. Sherman. Sherman. <laughs> there you go. It was cut off on my screen so far. Hey, Emma, how you doing? I'm good. I'm actually not really a first-time caller. I read something, I don't know, a couple of a year or two ago. Okay, well, welcome back. It's great to see you again. I, uh, what should we call it? A not so recent <laughs> call. It's been a while. Yeah. And we get a lot of those, which it's is great, too. So thanks for uh, joining us. And where are you calling from, Emma? I can't remember. Uh, New York City. Oh, great. Okay, let me try to uh, pull up. Did you email me your poem? I did. Okay, let me. Uh... There it is. Dear Palestine is the one, right? That's it. Okay, perfect. And of course, we kind of know what this is about. Is there anything you want to say before you read it? I was there during the first intifada about mm -hmm. 30 years ago doing human rights work uh, with the Palestine Aid Society and the Palestinian Solidarity Committee. And I was the only Jew among them. And yeah, um, I wrote this, I think, thinking a lot of those images that I had from back then. Mm -hmm. Dear Palestine, 
I would fight beside you if I could, though I lie, soft body that I am, and would die quickly on the field. Your bodies are soft too. I want you to know I'm with you, all of you, praying for the ones who are gagged and bound, those being dragged out to blinding courtyards, shot point blank right now. I'm sending strength to the ones who are capped at the knees and walk on air, for the ones who do not dare leave their holes while their hearts beat in other places, desecrated homes that cry, return, return, O mapless ones, come back to your place in this world, what was stolen from you and your children. I sing with you for the teased and taunted, for the terrorized, for those whose parents were taken in the night, houses bulldozed, beneath Klieg lights where heavy metal on the loudspeakers plays like a victory parade to grind us all to rubble. I disown my own people who shed your blood for fears they could have healed. Instead, they wear the skin of their past tormentors like children becoming their worst nightmares, picking infected wounds, confusing you with the ghosts of their old enemies who haunt them on the lake of history, reflecting memories they cannot shake. Yeah, and that was Dear Palestine once again. Thanks so much for sharing that. That was Emmett Goldman Sherman with that and voicing what uh, so many people are writing about, you know, trying to find, make sense of all the awful things that are going on in the world right now. Thanks for sharing that, Emma. Thank you. Yeah, uh, that was Dear Palestine once again by um, Emma Goldman Sherman. And I forgot to say uh, in my usual uh, you know, announcement that you can share any poems you want. So you can share poems about current events like these. You can share poems uh, from the prompts that we talked about earlier. Or you can share anything uh, you'd like that you wrote recently, published recently. The lines are truly open as long as it's poetry. And poetry is whatever you call poetry. So that whatever you want to share, feel free to. Let's go to Joe Cottonwood next. Okay, hi. Hi, Joe. Uh, I'm going to, this is not about war or death. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted, I, I was inspired by Jane last week and um, wanted to do an essay, essay. Um, and mine is called To Americana. And, and I realized after I wrote it that I don't, people who don't know what Americana is, I get it at first. It, I'm talking about the, the form of music, the um my son's a musician and he plays Americana and mm-hmm. uh, well, I, I deeply love music. So, okay, here we go to Americana. You grow from muddy waters for a century. You remain barefoot with brambles in your hair. You chew bluegrass, drink corn. You run through lawn sprinklers. You spit tobacco. Your hands are raw from picking cotton. Your voice is black with dust of coal. Your farm blew away. You smell a swamp. The academy holds its nose, slams doors at you. You thrive in fresh air. You explore a continent, follow rivers by paddle, cross deserts by ox cart. Climb mountains, hand over foot. 
You kill the native and the buffalo. You regret. You sing of what remains. Your men go outlaw. Your women go wrong. You celebrate love. You betray it. You despise riches. You want some. You raise children in rags. They outgrow you, outgrow your front porch and tumble down shack. You shame them with twang and holler of blues. They trade Chevys for Teslas. They bring the South north. They bring the West east. And just wait, they return. They bring fresh children, dip their feet in muddy waters. That's great. To Americana, and I say great use of the form, uh, breaking that down. No pun intended. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that, Joe. And I love Americana music, uh, so it's it's one of my top of my playlists because I I do love acoustic stuff especially. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Joe. Thank you. All right, yeah, there's Joe Cottonwood with Two Americana, and I say, let's go next to uh, let's go to Sharon Ferrante next. I had good. Hi, I had to get that. <laughs> Hi. I'm Great not to too good you. with you, you. You guys know that. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Uh, I wanted to thank you for the interview with Marianne. It was really quite beautiful and enlightening. I loved it. Oh, thank you. So what do you have thank to share? Um, I did not write an essay. Essay, essay. <laughs> See, I, I, I never looked it up, and I meant to, and that's that's the guilt of not having looked it up that, that <laughs> was surfacing as I was babbling about it. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I wanted to come on and say hi and share something, so I just put some tanka. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, I put uh, four tanka for you. Okay, we have it right here. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Enchanted by climbing your hills. I pull a blade of grass from each fall. In the forest, I walk in reverse. Suddenly, I begin to chase myself again. I open your book, feeling immortal. I close it, hoping for tomorrow. What's on your mind, the empty page asks. I'm waiting for the beauty of your non-truth. Oh, those were wonderful. Yeah, Sharon. What was your favorite one, Katie? Oh, gosh. I don't know. <laughs> I think I think maybe the first, actually. I think, I don't know, but I also love the last one. But anytime Sharon Ferrante <laughs> shares a poem, you just know it's going to be good. <laughs> yeah, I love that first one, too. Yeah. That I pull a blade of grass from each fall. That's mm. just perfect. Yeah, yeah. it's beautiful. <laughs> I've been writing a lot more Tonka lately, so I wanted to share. Something. Yeah, very cool. And it's one of those things I think maybe, you know, as much as we love haiku around these parts, maybe we should spend more, give more attention to the Tonka. I think know? so, too. Five uh, lines, but, a lot to work with. I, I write them really strange. I don't, of course, adhere to any syllable count. And I don't worry about line length. I remember Caitlin was talking about it one time, certain kind of Tonka. Mm-hmm. But no, I just write it the way that I want to uh, read it. I read it out loud, and that's the way the line lengths got one of it. Yeah, well, that sounded great but to I, me. Yeah, I love Tonka, yeah. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for sharing that, Sharon. Thank Wonderful you. as always, yeah. 
Good to see everybody. Yeah, take care. Yeah, Thank Sharon you. Fronte with uh, Fortanka. Um, Lex, let's go to uh, Douglas Silver. Hi, Tim. Hi, Katie. Hi, all the poets. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you, as always. So uh, what do you have for us today? I, I sent something in. Um, it's called an essay on my father's favorite phrases. Oh, that's a great title. That's a great topic to do an essay on, I have to say. Thank you. Well, last week, Tim, you noticed the phrase in my poem. It said, uh, business is booming. You know, mm-hmm. you mentioned that. So I went back and thought of a bunch of things uh, <laughs> my, fa- my father used to say. My father had a lot of phrases as well. Oh, that's so great. So I'm trying to somehow maybe analyze them. Oh, great. Let's hear it. Okay. An essay on my father's favorite phrases. Although perhaps the least poetic person I've ever known, my father, even he had his moments. This was not one of them. As he was driving to the job site, me, maybe 10 years old, another temporary service to install. Even then, I loved that phrase. Electricity to get the job going for the carpenters, the masons, the others a bumper sticker on a car in front of us. Underground wires are beautiful. I laughed, read it out loud, and asked my father what he thought about it. He didn't laugh, didn't seem to hear me, and didn't tell me what he thought about it. But this was one of them. When he didn't like something, anything, the neighbor's dog yelping or the telephone on the wall nagging, he'd say, I'm going to kick that thing right into next week. I tried with my young mind to imagine how he'd do that and what it would look like. Although I never figured it out, I like the images in my mind of all these things flying. And then there's this one. If he knew something was going to take a while, anything, an electrical job he didn't want to do, or the payment for his property taxes, he'd say, that'll take a month of Sundays. Even way back then, I was good at math. A month of Sundays, 30 days, 30 weeks, about seven and a half months. Even then, with my young mind, I knew a month of Sundays sounded a lot better than seven and a half months. And finally, only 36 years old, my father already an old man, bald, overweight, body brittle, raging diabetes still undiagnosed as he reaches for yet another Reese's peanut butter cup. Every night he'd come home from work and he'd say, my aching back, over and over. And before he could even ask, what's for supper? My mother rushing a a plateful to him at the kitchen table. All of us kids hiding in our rooms, jumping like Pavlov's dogs, hearing her sweetly, softly yelling, time for supper, your father's home. And oh, poem. Thanks yeah. a lot. Thanks so much for sharing that, Douglas. A really funny poem, then using humor to get to the touching part of it. Thanks. Uh, this is a great example of that. I loved, uh, loved the use of that. Underground wires are beautiful. I have to agree. That's great. Yeah, that's great. And I'm definitely going to start using a month of Sundays. Too. Yeah, a month of Sundays. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Douglas. Thank you. Yep, take care. Yeah, Douglas right. Silver with an essay. Or assay, I don't know, on my father's favorite phrases. Okay. Yeah, I should have, before we did a whole segment on this, I should have looked it up. Maybe we should just say essay and then we know we're wrong. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> we could all be wrong together. We'll all be wrong together. <laughs> Speaking of being wrong together, let's call on Nate Jacob. <laughs> hey, wrongness loves company. It does. How are you doing, Nate? <laughs> I'm good. How are you guys? We're great. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> so, hey, uh, uh, so, what do you got to share? <laughs> well, uh, I wrote an assay. 
and I'm going to say it as Okay. Uh, it's uh, not my style at all, and it's a little heavy. Interesting. Okay. But it's, uh, you know, it was really hard to write. Uh, this is not my normal form, and I think it turned out to be just a simple ode, but we'll read it anyways. It's interesting you bring that up, because the difference between an ode and an essay is... Uh... It's very close. We were talking about that, too. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Like, what is the difference exactly? So I'm sure we're going to learn that with your poem, Nate. Exactly. <laughs> I am not here to keep anything. <laughs> okay. Maybe <well>, patient. <laughs> All right. To loneliness, an essay. It's not that I never see you coming, nor that I never expect you. I do. It's only that I sense your approach in wall-to-wall friends and dance, in warm lights of shared celebration. Too often you arrive unannounced, unwanted, in passion's darkened rooms. I've stopped hoping you will learn your place and your time. You won't. It's not that you chase me so far off into corners, empty extremes and shadows, where my reach no longer finds handholds. Why must you come to me unreckoned? Why be such an exclusive companion, demanding the fullness of my attention and every last bit of oxygen? Why feed the darkening fire pit where once I'd thought to share warmth and worlds with others? I am never alone, thanks to you. It is never so simple as that. I am never so lonely as when your smothering shadow passes over and through me, as when the coolness of your breath fills in the valleys through which I pass. Then, like the angel of death, finds my lintel bloody enough to spare me, lone survivor, then to leave me in its settling wake, thinking I've been going it alone all along. I've been doing so well. It's then I find you there again, absent everyone else, wishing yet again I hadn't. Yeah, great poem as always, Nate. I really like that. Uh, that was uh, To Loneliness, an essay. And I think that is an, an essay. I think it's definitely an essay. And it's really interesting to read. That's one of the most different poems I've seen from you. So that that was really interesting. I, I really enjoyed it, Nate. Oh, thanks for the challenge. It was tough. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Okay, well, let's go next to, uh, yeah, it was Nate Jacob, I should say, with To Loneliness, an essay. Now let's go next to Dick Westheimer, because he has settled this dispute in the uh, messaging. Hey, Dick, how you doing? <laughs> of course, I've settled it in my uh, normal way, which is, on the other hand, on one hand, <laughs> looks like it's both. Looks like it's both. Mm-hmm. Well, there you go. That that explain it. So both both Jane Hirschfield and I are right. Yay! It's a happy ending <laughs> <Yay>. for all. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm of the Carla Schwartz school, and and pretty much everyone else. I'm in the minority, <laughs> at least. Right. Um, so, what do you have to share um, today, Dick? Well, first of all, I love, I love the reading tonight, and and uh, you'll note in if you ever go back and look at the um, at the chat, um, the riff on REM sleep and rhyme and dream and muscle movement just was <laughs> it was it was worth a month of Sundays of listening to that. <laughs> oh, thanks, Dick. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean that that and and of course it fits so well with those wonderful poems. Um, so I too wrote about um, the multi-dimensional, never-ending saga of the conflict that was brought to a head by Hamas's uh, brutal raid on on Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I wrote in my note to you, it, it's uh, called An Ancient Coin That Has No Sides, uh, mm-hmm. submitted to, to Poets Respond. Yeah, I've got it right here. And, mm-hmm. um, 
you know, one of the things that you'll find uh, if you enter even a very small room that has one or two uh, Jews in it is the first thing they'll ask each other in the past week is, how are you doing? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's sort of a, a deep contrast to, to other spaces where you might not hear that question. Yeah, it's true. So, and, yeah, that's um, interesting. Something um, Michael Mark brought up. I remember on the um, Poets Response segment where he had that poem about speed walking um, after a shooting at a synagogue, and he talked about the same thing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So anybody go look yeah, up that poem I, yeah, if you uh, for that sense of that sure. feeling too. Yeah, and 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 one hundred percent. Though it's not my experience. Um, completely confident the same question is asked in Palestinian and many other Muslim communities. So mm-hmm. it's not it's not universal to us. It's just my experience. Um, so this is an ancient coin that has no sides. And the epigraph is a familiar one from Wendell Berry. There are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places, yeah. Wendell Berry. In here, my grief is a hiding child who weeps for the butchery of his fellow Jews. In here, no one speaks. Out there are sparrows gabbling about the war. Jays like men drunk on their own musk take up sides. Solidarity one cause in his jagged call terrorists and other shrills into a sky so blue this morning like a mediterranean day like today a high of 82 degrees and no clouds in gaza city a good time to get away go to the beach where maybe no missiles fly where children's bodies are not evidence that same Sun shines today on Kibbutz Re'im at the rave where no one asked what music goes best with rape, what dance step best precedes slaughter. In my hiding place, night falls and I look up into a sprawl of stars, more than I've seen before, a thousand I count of the newly dead, translated into a language we hear even when we cover our ears. I try to discern which new lights are Palestinians and which are Jews. Are the ones that twinkle so insistently children or warriors, old or so young that they have no place yet forbidden to them? In the midst of it all, comes a chemist with a flask from which poison spills. And anyone who asks which side stirs the venom, which is the kettle, and which is the toxic swill, misses the point. The yellow-rumped warbler, high in the dying spruce nose, but she chirps in riddles, in verse with no rhyme. Yeah, another really great poem, Dick. Uh, that was uh, an ancient coin that has no sides. And uh, yeah, beautiful poem. Again, another one speaking to what so many of the, the submissions address this week. So it's something so many people are trying to grapple with um, the events of the world. Thanks for sharing that, Dick. Yeah, thanks so much, Jim. Appreciate yep. the forum. Yep, take care. Bye.
Yeah, Dick Westheimer again with an ancient coin that has no sides. Uh, let's go to Clayton Clark next. After that? <laughs> <laughs> well, someone had to. <laughs> Thanks, Clayton, for uh, being the one. So what do you have for us, and how are you doing tonight? Amazing night. You know, beautiful interview, and, and everyone's poems are so good. So here comes contrast. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> so I see you having a say, too. I do, and it's called Grief. Um, it's not really after Jane Hirschfeld, but it was spurred by her. So, well, I think anyway. it counts. It after Jane Hirschfeld it occurred mm-hmm. sequentially. Yes. So I think that works. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, uh, not sure how to thank you for all the flowers I received in your name. Not sure why you, as backdrop, are needed to make light brighter, make roses smell sweeter. Bring tears to relieve stress. Does it make you giddy grief to push us to the cliff's edge, then drag some lucky ones back with a snap of your leash? Joy is fleeting, but you, once you appear, remain resolute in your reason for being. Such a deep, dark bed of sorrow you supply. As long as we exist, we'll have to accept you're here to stay. Try to see clearly. We can't live without you in our own milky way. Oh, another beautiful poem. I love that grief snapping back image. It's great. I was going to say that if you didn't, too. That's a really <laughs> strong line. Wow. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing that, Clayton. Thanks. Oh, it was really fun. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it's Clayton Clark again with grief and essay and a great example of that form there. Um, let's go next to Gwendolyn Soper. Hi, Katie and Tim. Hey. Hi, everybody. Yeah, great to see you. It's good to see you, too. I had to step away early, just right in between that little window to go put the chickens to bed and got a sliver. So oh, no, just, not oh, a no. sliver. Oh. <laughs> I a little sliver, but, oh, that, yeah, it's so good to see you all. Yeah, great. It's great to see you. So what do you have to share with us today? Well, there was something you said earlier in conversation with Marianne about dreams, and so it just recalled a poem um, I'd written, and there's room for it to go in certain directions and also for some things to be taken out, and I'm going to read it. Okay, yeah, great. Let's hear it. Okay, Holograms at 61. Eidetic memory defined a phenomenon of exceptional recollection used to remember an object in a highly accurate way, to see it for a few minutes after it's no longer present, projected rather in front of the person instead of mentally, some say. It's short-term, used by children, a few minutes at most, essentially absent, in adults, I felt so sad when I read children lose it when they start to read and memorize in schools. But if I sit for a minute, perhaps I can recall an eidetic memory. Hyacinths, there now. See, every detail is clear to me there on my stomach, on the grass near the border of my mother's garden and some evergreens. When mom calls us inside, Holographs of hyacinths hover in front of my face, over my plate of grilled cheese sandwiches and bowl of tomato soup, and they disappear when Ted walks in. 
now. I'm 61. My holograms are absent, but when I'm 90, they'll return, I'm sure. Don't they say we become more like children? So my holograms will be of many things, I imagine. The face of my lover when he was young, our children, their children, poets I longed for once, holograms conjured only in my dreams. Oh yeah, another excellent poem, really touching, and an essay-like too, I think, in uh, its style, which is interesting. Yeah, I love the holograms of Hyacinth. What a music in that line, it's so beautiful. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thanks. Once again, that was Gwendolyn Soper with uh, Holograms at 60. Um, next up, let's go to uh, Brent Stauffer. Yeah, hey, Brent. Hey, how's it going, guys? Good, good, <laughs> good to see you. Nice to see you guys. So, what yeah. do you got? What do you got for us today? <laughs> well, I have what I my attempt my at an essay. Essay. It's sort of a a slippery concept, really. Um, I, I mean, it's not when she does it. But when I was trying to do it, I was like, am I doing this right? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that but, was my, my experience um, exactly. It, was, it, was, I, it seemed like it made a lot of sense until you sat down and tried to do it. Right. And then you're yeah. like, wait a minute, what exactly are we doing? Yeah, I know. I think you underestimated yeah. because I told Tim that same exact thing. I was like, I don't think I'm doing this right. I have to look at it again. Tim was like, come on, you can do this. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was true. Well, I... Th- <laughs> Well, I you guys did well. Most we'll we'll see what y'all think about this. But, okay, let's um, hear it. Uh, so it's it's to to change um, an essay um, from bud to bloom and back again. You pulled the rose along. Before we're born, we're all the same, tucked in tiny creatures. But that doesn't last. We never get used to you, even though you and your sister chance gave birth to us. The sun shoulders through stubborn clouds and we put our sweaters away. Then the moon has us running for our warmest jackets. Gray creeps into the beard before launching a full frontal assault. (laughs) Rivers carve canyons. Monsoons swallow lowlands. Countries cobble themselves together and fall apart. Flecks on seafoam. We never know what you'll do to us lawyer or barfly or both, soldier or sailor, living or dead. At first we think we're quicker than you when you're stretching our young bones toward the future and adulthood beckons like a siren. Then we find the world has changed utterly. You overtake us, you swamp and ravage us. Our next instinct is to fight. We scribble manifestos in black ink carve human heads out of mountains, construct towering symphonies. When that doesn't work, we hide in endless paperwork, TV shows, whiskey, football, church, fried food. Should I forgive you for scattering the atoms of so many friends? Should I praise exploding stars? Maybe your twin time or your mother entropy is the true source of this grief. That seems abstract compared to you, the only constant companion I've ever known. I twist and kick against the walls of this cocoon, not knowing if chrysalis will ever crack it open. 
Oh, that was beautiful. Yeah, yeah. thanks so much for sharing that, Brent. That's definitely, I think the essay aspect of that led you in a, you know, different places and pushed it deeper. I think it's a great example of how that form can really yeah. work. Yeah. 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 I'm surprised you ever questioned if it was an essay, frankly. It's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, guys. Yeah. And it was definitely the, the, the stretching toward the form that uh, made it go in those weird directions. So it was a great prompt. Yeah, um, yeah. Thanks a lot. Great example. I do. I really like uh, having to do this style. It's pushing the pushing the boundaries a little bit. Thanks, Brent. Yeah. Thanks a lot, guys. Yep. Take great care. night. So that was Brent Stoffer with no Two Change and Essay. Next, let's go uh, to uh, Stephen Horrell. <laughs> Have I unmuted? You are. You're good. Hey, good to see you. <laughs> okay. I I'm actually quite humbled by the quality of the poems tonight, and 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 I feel almost quite out of my league here. Oh, that's not true. The poems are always great, but we're all friends and it's all the same league. <laughs> but, so we're good. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm usually, you know, at least a month or two behind on, on, on the prompts. So I'm going to read Ode to a Cutting Board. Oh. And I believe your prompt was at that time, pick something in the room you're in and write an ode to it. Yeah, that's yeah, that was. Do you remember who? Okay, and of uh, course it was right by my left hand was a cutting board. Uh huh. So this is an ode to a cutting board, which uh, Katie thinks it might be close to an essay, <laughs> but I but I doubt it. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> ode to a cutting board. Uh, flat piece of alder wood, a foot square. Rounded corners inlaid with two thin strips of mahogany. First to every meal, lightly grooved by the passage of knife and time. All we ate passed over this board, beautifully utilitarian, center of all our meals for years. Birthday dinners, children's lunches, holiday gatherings, meals with friends, solitary breakfast bread. And I feel the strong fingers, the discerning eye that fashioned it, the mahogany strips inlaid as we were into each other, so finely done, firm still at one with the alder. Your hand graced it over the years more than mine. Celebrate, waiting for the knife to cut to the heart of us. Oh, that was just beautiful. I love that, Stephen. Especially the uh, mahogany strips inlaid as we were into each other. That was a great <laughs> line there. Really beautiful, uh, lovely love poem. Thanks for sharing yeah. that. Yeah, it makes me my uh, uh My wife fashioned that uh, cutting board. Oh, that's beautiful. That's so special. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the end feels like a haiku to me, too. It's really special. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks okay. so much, Steve. Thank you. Okay. That was uh, Steve uh, Horrell with Ode to a Cutting Board. And we still have Bishwajit Mishra. I'm sorry. Wait, I kind of forgot about you there, Bishwajit. You were hiding in between Gwen and Lucy. <laughs> How are you doing today? Yeah, good evening. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. <laughs> I just keep my video on because I I sometimes close my eyes. And <laughs> That's all right. No I don't look. I don't want to look disrespectful. I, I just... I don't know, very fidgety. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but before we start, I'll just take a minute. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I would like to offer my prayers or whatever best wishes to the people who are only, always the losers, people in the middle. Mm -hmm. Because yeah, there are no sure. winners in the war. 
and uh, they pay the price uh, for the politicians or or rebels or whatever he calls. So my, I don't know what it does, but I guess if more of us will just pray for them, maybe something good will come to them. Yeah, really well said. Thanks, Mr. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, also my condolences for the passing of Louis Glick oh, yeah. last mm -hmm. Friday. Um, and so I have an essay. <laughs> I would take long, it's late, but I just wanted, because there were so many poems today and uh, I thought I, I just, I didn't write a poem on this thing. Uh, and But I wanted to say a few words. For okay. the yeah, for sure. Well, I, I appreciate it. That was really well said. So you have uh, the essay, though, uh, Trying to Understand Love? <laughs> I don't know if it can be called an essay or is <laughs> I tried. Yay. <laughs> okay, yeah, well, let's hear it. I have it ready. Go ahead. Okay, Trying to Understand Love, an essay. Writing a poem the other day when I was alone, your name came into play. Now, when the after test of the poem is almost gone, a confounding sense starts seeping in. A dream with a dialectical. Can you be a subsisting experience? Sweetness, but are you also whole, like a whole day, without borrowing a, con a contrast? A dreamy state of inebriation, but are you the before and after wakefulness too? A welling up emotion, but emotion may just be your vocabulary for the poem. What is it then? A lotus leaf in the swamp? free from good and bad, or a filter through which what goes in comes out as rainwater, or a membrane for osmosis, or the earth that keeps the dead wood and turns into coal for the burning, or the earth that goes a step further and makes it a diamond for the shining, or a stone that takes in a dead leaf and brings out an epitaph. I am at the end as I have been in the beginning. So just enjoy the honey and keep the weaker lit. Oh, that was great. I love especially that a, a dream with a dialectical. That's a cool, yeah. cool expression. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much thank for sharing you. that, Bishwajit. Really, always yeah, a pleasure. Thank you. Have a good night. Yep, you too. Yeah, that was Bishwajit Mishra with uh, Trying to Understand Love and a say. Let me make sure we got to everybody who is here, and we did. Yeah, excellent work, and thanks for good job being quick. We're right at the exact time we wanted to be. And um, now let's mention what the uh, next week's prompt is going to be, Katie. Um, I think I want to, let's see, we'll pull this up right here. And uh, do you remember it or do you want me to read it? I think you should read it from <laughs> there. It's a little bit longer than last week's, which was two words or something. Yeah, it, it is. And I think um, I want to make a little edit too. So this was the prompt. And I think, what if you agree with this? Let's okay. see. So this was the prompt we decided on. Mm -hmm. Write a poem about a museum for an abstract concept, uh, like Marianne's poem. I think that'd be really fun to generate poems with. Um, you, we said using any fixed form of your choice. Mm -hmm. And we were trying to decide between using, um, um, you know, one of the forms Marianne used or just like let it be open. We didn't want it yeah. to all be the same. Right. I was thinking that what if we did one of the forms she used? Is that a good oh, compromise? That's, good. that's a good compromise. Yeah, we didn't really quite get to the point <laughs> of satisfying both. That's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'll add that into the notes. But she used a, she had a villanelle. Mm -hmm. She had a guzzle. Mm -hmm. She had that really interesting. Um, um, it was four beats with a the alliteration. That poem. The the uh, the medieval style. Oh right. Early mm -hmm. on, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and she had a, a sort of a free verse rhyming poem too. So right. I think those are the forms you could use. Yeah. 
Um, but using one of those forms um, of your choice, that'll give some variety too. Mm-hmm. Uh, write a poem about a museum for an abstract concept using any fixed or well yeah there we go and so the title should be the museum of blank uh like in marianne's poem it was the museum of um can we find it again really quick (laughs) find it fast enough that's a big question (laughs) the museum of american opulence so that was the poem of marianne's that inspired this so it's the museum of something something abstract and that'll be your prompt for this week and um let's see and now let's do the saiku really quickly we'll scroll up i think the saiku is yeah the next one up so this is, oops, I reveal the Saiku. Don't <laughs> well, reveal. I'm not looking. I'm not looking. <laughs> okay. So first we want to go to the link. I'm sorry. So this is an interesting story, though. This is um, from, um, here we got to gotta shrink the page. Ah, all these pop-ups don't pop up. Okay. So <laughs> this is a story. Asteroids may be hiding never-seen elements from beyond the periodic table. How oh. cool is that story? And so there's this asteroid. Um, that they measured it from, you know, using spectroscopy from a distance or whatever. And um, the densest thing on Earth is 22 grams per cubic centimeter, which is uh, the element uh, osmium. And what they measured in this asteroid a a while ago, which they think might be a mistake, is um, um, the comet is polyhymnia, and it was 75 grams per cubic centimeter in mass so it is like three times as dense as the densest element on the planet (laughs) and they think if they originally thought it was a mistake but then uh, these physicists are modeling it out and there's actually the stable area around uh, 165 or 164 atomic number um, where it would be stable not radioactive enough and would exist so maybe it's actually something that's that dense so really fascinating to think about something that dense floating around in outer space Mm. And anyway, that was the story that I was trying to think of a haiku about. And this was my haiku, more of a um, senru this week. It is this. Density beyond the periodic table. Old pee on the floor. (laughs) So that was uh, one of my son's presents. It's a little bit of messy eating last night. Well, weeks ago. And then, um, (laughs) or months ago. I don't even know what that's from. I don't know when we had peas. But I found a pea. So there you go. Density beyond the periodic table. (laughs) And that is the Saiku for the week. That is the show for the week. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. It's been a lot of pleasure, as it always is. Next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be Brian Turner. Now, Brian Turner, you probably remember him. He's a great poet. His uh, book, Here Bullet, about the uh, first Iraq war and his time there was one of the biggest, you know, most successful books in poetry in the last several decades. Um, he had a follow-up book to that and then sort of a gap in silence where he didn't publish any books. He just published three books just this month with Alice James books all at once. He dropped three. So that's one of them. It's The Wild Delight of Wild Things, but there are two other books. He also does music and he's got some music that accompanies it. It's really interesting too. So it's going to be really fun to talk to Brian Turner. We interviewed him in Rattle number 35 too, way back then. Uh, that's the cover of that issue is the background there. So uh, you might want to check out that issue too. But Brian Turner is a fascinating person, really fun guest he's going to be and he's got three books i don't know how we're going to fit all of this stuff in but it's going to be wonderful trying to find a way uh it's brian turner rattlecast 216 uh, the regular time monday october 23rd with your museum poems and uh this will be the regular time 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific hope you have a great week hope you have uh, fun in the meantime and i'll talk to you later good night thanks everybody good night <laughs>